from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty on demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. The biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival, presented by Capital One. Jason Aldean. Keith Urban. Jelly Roll. Old Dominion, Lady A, Riley Green, Ashley McBride, Brothers Osborne, Walker Hayes, all hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th, stream only on Hulu, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. I'm David Grosso, and you're listening to Follow the Prophet. You may have heard of him, especially if you're my age. I'm in my mid Actually, I'm almost 40 at this point, but Congressman Dennis Kucinich was someone who was, you know, a flag waver for the progressive movement. He ran for president in 2004, among many other things. And he's really been a person who fights corruption and was ahead of his time, really, politically. He's here joining me to talk about his story. How are you doing? Good to be with you today. It's, uh, you know, like you, a lot of things going on, and I'm very grateful to have the chance to discuss the division of light and power with uh, with you in bold. 
Yeah. So you have a book where you talk about your experience. But before we get to, you know, how you cleaned up Cleveland, like you grew up in Cleveland. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what what it was like. I I grew up in Cleveland, uh, the oldest of seven. My parents never owned a home. And as the family grew, it became increasingly difficult to find a place to rent. So, you know, we go from two children to three and suddenly it was very difficult to find a place. And often we just try to land with as many kids as we might be able to get into the apartment. The landlord would show up and say, you have to go. By the time I was 17, I lived in about 21 different places, including a couple cars. And that gave me a real compassion for what people can go through in life. You know, as a child, you don't really, it's kind of an awe and adventure. You don't really think about uh, the trials that your parents go through day to day to day because you're just living in a child's world. But, you know, as I look back, it, it's really, it's really a, uh, uh, it's really been a blessing because it's uh, informed me from an early time how difficult life can be for people, how people have to struggle to make ends meet, how, um, how one must always take that into account when you're in public service. Cause, and, and right now, these are particularly tough times for people in the Cleveland area. There's a high uh, poverty, high crime, uh, a lot of social disorganization. You know, and it's like I have a whole, a great big family here that I'm going to try to take care of. So you got into politics at the age of 23. You um, you joined the city council. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you besides your upbringing? And really, statistically, not a lot of people like you end up in politics. Well, you know, I, I've always felt on a spiritual side that my life doesn't belong just to me. It's, you know, I, I believe in service. If you want to be a leader, you should first be a servant. And so throughout my childhood, it was about serving and helping others. And when I was thinking about a career, I became interested in public service when John Kennedy was president. And I thought, you know, maybe this is an area where I could help people. So I ran for office at age 20 and was elected uh, the next time I ran two years later. And I was motivated and still am by a desire to serve, by a desire to help people, by a desire to make government work for people, to to meet people's practical aspirations for safety and for uh, good housing and clean streets and, you know, all those things that matter. Well, and you and your and your first big political fight was with the power company. You wrote a book about it, of course. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience fighting corruption with the public light company? Well, the minute that I got into council, uh, it, you know, I, I won an election. It's Christmas time just before I take the oath of office. I'm shopping with my wife in downtown Cleveland, and all of a sudden all the lights go off. Christmas disappears. Now, Cleveland had been having blackouts at inopportune times. We have a public power system. That system has competed door to door with a private utility monopoly in about a third of the city. But the city kept having outages and I wonder what's going on here. And so when I got into council, I found out that the private power company was blocking the city from making repairs 
on its generator so we could generate power. And in doing that, it made the city system less reliable. They were they were basically lobbying the city council to stop our municipal system from working. As the story goes on, I discover that some of the blackouts, which the city was experiencing, would, were being engineered by the private power company. That when the city needed the transfer of power, the private power company operated it in such a way as to create a blackout on the Muni light system. And then they'd send their salesmen into Muni light areas saying, ah, oh, looks like your company doesn't work too well. Why don't you sign up with us? There's a lot of dirty tricks. And the story is one of, of corporate sabotage, of corporate espionage. But it's also- Sounds like about- something- Go ahead. Sounds like something you would hear, Congressman, in like a third world country. Doesn't sound like something that would happen in Ohio. Well, it did. And you have to keep in mind, at that point, Cleveland, Ohio, was the number three corporate capital in America. And the corporations had decided that they just were going to back their member, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, in its effort to take over Muni Light. And at the same time, Cleveland was the number three, uh, was the bombing capital of America. Mob factions were at war with each other for control of gambling, prostitution, loan sharking, vices of all kinds. And that, you know, war broke out into the open. And it was against that backdrop that I end up uh, running for mayor on a pledge to save our city's municipal electric system from a takeover. Now, keep in mind, the system had been sold. I intervened. When I intervened, a high-powered rifle shot missed my head by a fraction of an inch. And I didn't realize until I was mayor that there was an active assassination plot, that there was so much at stake with this little utility that the private utility wanted to eliminate competition, be able to charge whatever they could to all utility customers in the area, and be able to start paying off the debts that were growing for them on nuclear power plants that they had built, which were not being used and which were not useful. And so they they had a financial. And there was a point when I became mayor that whatever they could do to get me out of the way, they were prepared to do. Wow. So how I was going to ask that question. How did you live to tell this tale? Because it seems like with that type of lawlessness and all those entrenched economic interests, they were going to stop you, whatever the costs. Uh, luck. I mean, absolute luck. I'll give you an example. I was supposed to be the Grand Marshal in a parade on the east side of Cleveland, primarily African-American area, uh, around Columbus uh, Day in 1978. And I was waiting to meet with Carl Stokes, who uh, had was the first African-American elected mayor of a big city, Mayor Cleveland, in 1967. I was waiting to meet with Carl Stokes. And at that point, Carl was uh, uh, making his name in broadcasting in New York City. So while I was waiting for Carl, I'm upstairs in my library in the very home that I'm talking to you from now. Um, I suddenly passed out. And when I woke up, I, there was blood everywhere. I didn't know what had happened there. I mean, my, my I was covered in blood from 
top to bottom. And um, I, I slumped back into the chair. My wife at this point was calling Carl, who had arrived to come upstairs. He lifts me up out of the bed, uh, out, of, out of the chair, puts me in, the, in bed, and the ambulance is on its way. It turned out that I had a, uh, an ulcer that broke over an artery, and I was bleeding to death. And I was rushed to Hillcrest Hospital, where over a period of time I was transfused uh, six units, which is like a complete transfusion. Um, when I woke, when I came to, I saw police everywhere at the hospital, and I, I talked to the chief of police. I said, what the heck's going on here? Well, they told me that they had discovered that there was this plot that was supposed to be executed while I was in that parade. And if I had, if I had been in that parade, I may not have lived to tell about it. And so because I was rushed to the hospital instead, I avoided that uh, very dangerous and possibly fatal encounter. I mean, this is one of the things about the book that makes the book, uh, um, for me, it was just extraordinary just to have to write it. But for the reader, you'll find it compelling from the standpoint of, how just sometimes fate intervenes. And just so you know, there was a U.S. Senate subcommittee report on organized crime in the Midwest that documented this very um, event that I'm talking about, which uh, you know, was supposed to occur while I was in this parade. So, you know, yeah, I was lucky to make, I was absolutely lucky to make it out of that term alive. And there were ongoing plots throughout the remainder of my time in office. So, uh, and, I, and I write about those as well. But I never so, talked about that at the time. Yeah, so in the end, you know, Muni Light saved the city hundreds of millions of dollars and kind of cemented your the rest of your political career, which took you to the state Senate and ultimately to Congress. What, what lessons did you take from that debacle and, you know, living in danger and fighting these entrenched interests to the rest of your career? Never never give up and never give in. Muni Light had been sold. I got involved and turned it around, saved the uh, system, stopped the uh, uh, private utility from forcing the sale, stopped a bank that told me on December 15, 1978, they were going to renew the city's credit on loans I hadn't even taken out unless I agreed to sell Muni Light to the private utility, which was their banking partner. I said, no, they put the city of Cleveland into default. You know, if you believe in something, you take a stand. You don't give up, you don't give in. And to me, uh, you know, public service means that you might be called upon at one point or another to put it all on the line, put your very career on the line. I was, I didn't know, by the way, after I left City Hall in 1979, that I'd ever have a political career again, because I was getting smeared as a guy that quote, bankrupt and unquote, the city of Cleveland. None of that was true, but it didn't matter because people knew what they were told in the newspapers and the newspapers and the rest of the media at that time in Cleveland, they were all in the tank for the private utility company and for the bank. They're all going along with this idea of selling Muni Light. The city was gaslighted. I mean, I mean you know, the story is, is a psychological thriller as well because it, it, it shows how the external reality that we all know can be so manipulated that people don't know which end is up. I know. And I just uh, was steadfast. 
I mean, the, the lessons learned, you know, the reader will may come up with different lessons, but the lesson I took away, never give up and never give in. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival, presented by Capital One. Jason Aldean, Keith Urban, Jelly Roll, Old Dominion, Lady A, Riley Green, Ashley McBride, Brothers Osborne, Walker Hayes, all hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th, stream only on Hulu, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. Politics takes a lot of patience, right? So you did state politics and then ultimately you went to Congress. How did you have the patience to deal with, you know, <laughs> uphill battles constantly? It seems like every day in politics is compromise, you know, agreement. It's it's not an easy profession. Well, life is very creative. I mean, I take a very creative approach to every day. You know, I don't spend my time worrying about what might happen. I spend my time trying to make things happen. And so uh, whether it was the state senate or the U.S. House, I'd look at the things creatively. 
and I believe in getting involved. I'm not somebody that sits back and watches. I'm a participant. And on the floor of the house, there's a dynamic there. It's like a big high school in some ways. But there's a dynamic, almost a physical emotion, you know, the movement of physical forces that you can feel when you're down or when there's an issue at stake. And to be involved, to, to talk to the people who are making the decisions as you are, you find that there are times when you can insert yourself into a, a debate and change the outcome. That's what makes it so exciting. That's why I love being on the floor of the house, because that's where, you know, things can happen. And so you know, I never got frustrated. I never felt uh, impatient for anything. I was just grateful to have a chance to represent the people and have a chance to enter into uh, the uh, decision making and, and the debates and occasionally have an opportunity to try to change the outcome. I mean, it's such a blessing to have that. And so I, you know, I felt very blessed to be there, particularly since, you know, when I left City Hall in Cleveland, I, I no one would take bets that I'd have a career again. So. Did you have Republican friends? Did you work with people across the oh, aisle? Yeah. What I was that like? Yeah, I don't really, you know, party, parties don't describe who we are as Americans. So I made it a point to reach across the aisle all the time. I'd like to point to the uh, this giant American eagle that spreads its wings across the canopy of the house. And to point up to it and say, you know, you see that eagle needs two wings to fly. None of us in politics are able to impose our will on anyone else. It's always a collaborative effect or effort. And, and, it, and it's unwise to disparage anyone because of their political party, their philosophy. Try to get to know them, try to work with them, see if you can work with them on one issue. You may disagree on 99, but the one issue you agree on could be the most important issue for the country. So always keep open the door to work with people. And that's what I've done. So I've worked with you know, Republicans, Democrats. Uh, to me, you know, you might have a disagreement, but that disagreement uh, uh, can enable you to explore a relationship. You might end up being friends and find something else to agree on, but never, never, never cut off uh, communication or cut off access to decision makers simply because you're not happy with the way a particular issue turned, turned out. I mean, life is this incredible pageant. There's so many opportunities out there every day that if you could find something to agree with people on or they would to, with you, hey, you might really be able to make a contribution and change things. So I always look for those opportunities. And I, you know, if I was impatient, it was only to get started at a given day and get into it, get into the action. So eventually your your congressional district that you represented for so many years was redistricted, was redistricted. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it was a little bit of a gandy dance as far as between the Democrats and Republicans, because at first the Republicans were going to chop up the district, but then they decided not to because I was one of the few Democrats who was willing to talk to them, even though I didn't vote with them. So it looked like I had a district. And then the Democrats weighed in and they said, nah, you know, Kucinich has to go. He's not down the line with us all the time. And so um, eventually my seat was chopped up, but not at the behest of the Republicans. 
at the behest of Democrats. And, you know, politics uh, can be very strange that way. You just presume, well, Democrats would want to protect a longstanding Democratic seat. Not a chance. Uh, you know, political parties have their own agenda. They represent interests that I may or may not have uh, gone along with. You know, that's okay. I never complained about it. But the one thing people need to know, it was not the Republicans who caused my congressional seat to be eliminated. It was the Democratic Party out of Columbus, Ohio. Wow. So do you think you were too far left for them or just off the political spectrum or not pushing their agenda sufficiently to their liking? I can't be controlled. I'm not transactional. If something's right, I'll, I'll go along with it. If it's not, I won't. I mean, it's really, that's pretty simple. But there are types who feel that, well, whatever the party, quote unquote, wants, you got to do it. You know, but is, uh, is the party really have a good, um, you know, thumb on the pulse of America? We saw that um, Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, you know, and what ensued afterwards. Does well, the party really uh, understand? Well, it, I, it can. It can. But when it doesn't, it's generally because, you know, 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, the Democratic Party started to take contributions from the same corporate interests as Republicans. So the difference between the two parties became blurred. That doesn't mean that people inside the party were blurring their differences, but the differences did become blurred. And and that would affect party policy. Healthcare, for example. I mean, the insurance companies have their hooks into both political parties. This is the reason why you don't have Medicare for all. Yeah, I mean, it just just happens that way. So the system, uh, the system needs a lot of help. And I think it probably needs another party as well. But, you know, it's, it's, it's often uh, when you're inside, all you have is your integrity. You, you know, I, I'm not holier than now. I'm not better than anyone else. But if I see something I don't agree with, because I think it's fundamentally wrong, <laughs> nothing anybody can tell me about what they're going to do to me, for me, or whatever is going to change my mind. On the other hand, if I agree with something, I'll work with anyone to make it, make, make it accomplished. So, you know, it's, I guess my approach is somewhat pragmatic, but it's a kind of pragmatism born of idealism. About your presidential run, because I remember that. I remember seeing you on TV and, you know, you were one of the... You were uh, seeing in my notes here, and I had forgotten this. You were the last to concede to John Kerry. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I, look, I was in that race from uh, uh, February of 2003, I think it was, all the way through to the convention in Boston. And I, and I, uh, you know, my purpose was to make sure that the people knew they had a choice all the way through. And they did. And so, you know, I, I was able to run. Uh, I ran a lot stronger in some of the later primaries. And I was very happy to stay in the race. In the end, you know, I supported the nominee. That's part of the deal when you get in to that kind of a, of a setting. In a way, you're honor bound. So tell me a little bit about um, also. So you you said you stayed you stayed in the race in order to talk about certain issues, and that 
after your congressional career brought you to Fox News, an unlikely platform for you, Congressman, isn't it? Not at all. I mean, it's actually how to change people's minds if you don't talk to them. Fox News is a very powerful news outlet. And I had a chance to be able to communicate with people without changing my opinion on anything. Fox News didn't hire me so they could get me to spout some kind of a Fox party line. That never happened. They wanted to know what my opinion was. I mean, when I was called by Roger Ailes to consider going to work for Fox, he said, Dennis, I don't agree with much of anything that you say, but I think you're honest. And I think that your point of view would be valuable on our, uh, on our network. And so I was never, ever in hundreds of appearances ever asked to take a particular point of view or line even suggested. And what I found out was that uh, uh, it really set the stage for a deeper understanding that you can communicate with people, even though you may have strong differences of opinion. And you can have friendships with people, even though you may differ as far as, you know, one important issue or another. In fact, you came out and praised Trump's inauguration speech. Can you tell me why? And for those of us who are confused, <laughs> can you clear that up? Well, you know, I think, I, I, first of all, I think that being a good American involves that no matter who wins the election, you give that person at least a day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, it's like he didn't need to pile on on day one. He said some things about American trade that I've been saying for 40 years. I thought it was good. Um, you know, my, no one would confuse my politics with Donald Trump who knew anything about me. Uh, but I also feel that, you know, it was the beginning of a new term. And you want to you wanna communicate to all Americans that as Americans, the election's over, we close ranks and move the country ahead. Um, that's on day one. On day two, you can go back to fighting. But right after an inauguration, I mean, you know, it's like, I, I, I think it's a, I think as an American, I think all, all of us as Americans need to uh, consider that day, which is a celebration of who we are as a country. It's a celebration of process. We may not like the person who gets elected, you know. I can tell you, I've watched many inaugurations and looked at someone raising their right hand and I didn't vote for that person. But you close ranks as a country for a day where you celebrate America, not one person. And you try to indicate an interest in giving somebody a break and working with them. Um, and, you know, I don't know many times that uh, he would have had my vote, but I will tell you that uh, I think that we have to respect the presidency on the inauguration day. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. The biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival, presented by Capital One. Jason Aldean, Keith Urban, Jelly Roll, Old Dominion, Lady A, Riley Green, Ashley McBride, Brothers Osborne, Walker Hayes, all hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th, stream only on Hulu, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Congressman, if I give you a magic wand, this podcast is called Follow the Profit. If you could reinvent the American economy, what would you do? Line by line. Um, Stop spending money on wars. We have blown trillions of dollars on wars that were based on lies. There's no other way to put it. We're not going to rule the world. We can't afford to rule the world. We have enough problems figuring out how we're going to run our country rather than telling somebody else how they should run theirs. I take a, you know, I, I, I would caution about this um, aggressive militarism, which has marked uh, America's foreign policy in the last 20 years. I mean, Biden seems to be dialing that back, as did Trump in some ways. And I would, uh, so, you know, you, you suddenly have trillions of dollars that you make available for other priorities, such as rebuilding the infrastructure. Congress is doing that right now, hopefully. 
we have over three, four trillion dollars in needs to rebuild America. Roads, bridges, water systems, sewer system. It's an investment in our country. You put people back to work with good paying jobs. That's what you need. You need good paying jobs. I trade change all these trade agreements. I mean, Americans, America was a sucker of the world on trade. You know, whether it was NAFTA, GATT, the China trade, I voted against everyone that I could. I grew up in an era where free trade was kind of, you know, a decided issue. Why were you always suspicious of it? Because it didn't have any uh, requirements for workers' rights, for wages, for human rights, prohibitions on slave labor, for environmental quality principles. I mean, it's, we have these principles of sorts in our country, but when we go to China or other countries and they don't have any workers' rights, any human rights, any environmental quality principles, what happens? We're actually subsidizing a degradation of the environment, a degradation of humanity, a, a diminishment of workers' rights. And we're undermining those rights here at home. I saw that so clearly. And so, you know, whether it was in Seattle in 1999 when the Teamsters were marching with the Turtles and I had 118 members of Congress sign a petition demanding that any trade agreement that came out of Seattle, mandatory workers' rights, human rights, environmental quality principles. Trade, trade's great, but you've got to have a level playing field. America's never done that. Look, when China trade came up, there were five lobbyists for every member of Congress. We spent over 2,000 lobbyists, right? And American, leading American corporations were coming to my office. Boeing came into my office and asked me to vote for China trade. And what I had discovered before the meeting is they were going to give China the prototype on the development of the latest aircraft. Aircraft manufacturing, huge American industry. Why the hell would we give that away to anybody? So I, I really look at what's best for America. Not, you know, and, and, you know, worry about the rest of the world later. Take care of America. We haven't done that. Well, we've hollowed out our middle class, no matter what you think about free trade. Do you feel like free trade has really played a role in kind of, you know, places like Ohio have been hollowed out industrially? 100%. Draw a straight line from those trade agreements to the closing down of small factories and, you know, dialing back of big industries. Uh, Main Street stores start to go down because people don't have the income they once had. They lose their jobs. They they, you know, have to relocate to other areas. Their quality of life has been diminished. Yeah, the middle class standing of Americans started to erode about 50 years ago. And, you know, trade's been part of it. And our uh, spending on military has been part of it. Our, uh, you know, the drugs that came into this country as a result of our involvement in Southeast Asia the drugs that came into this country as a result of our involvement in Afghanistan. Our country's been under assault and bad decisions have been made. I love America, but you know, our policies, foreign policies, domestic policies, uh, continue to leave something to be desired. So I stay involved. So how do you begin? So it seems like, you know, dialing back the military industrial complex is pretty straightforward, right? No matter what you think, right? And we're all pro-military, pro-veterans. But that's a pretty 
easy issue. This free trade issue is a lot more dicey because, you know, speaking to you today on a bunch of imported equipment, you know, we have a situation where China is an ascending power, you know, with all our stuff that we buy, they use that money for their global ambitions. How do you even begin to undo the last 20 years? years of just established free trade we have to rebuild our strategic industrial base if we're going to rebuild our infrastructure we ought to be using american steel you know you have steel automotive aerospace shipping those are industries that help build america they help sustain us through world wars they help they help build the middle class we've let a lot of it erode we need to go back to that there's not you know it's like give me that old-time religion you know we need to go back to to making things with our hands by American, you know, or buy by American. You, you, all the cheap goods that we buy, people are making next to nothing making them, right? And we're not buying things that are made in America, that where people get a decent wage and some benefits. Got to start thinking about that. I mean, we have this, you know, multi-trillion dollar, 20, you know, economy, and we act like, uh, you know, these corporate interests really have sold out America. I mean, that's the way I look at it, by, by shipping our jobs out of the country. You know, I come from Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio was part of the, you know, industrial power that built America, that sustained it. And I see what happened in Cleveland. I see these trade agreements have, have eroded it, and we still have to face some of the issues that I've raised. They're still uh, existed. This sounds like a lot of the stuff that the Trump administration tried to pursue. Do you feel like they were on the right track with the tariffs with China and whatnot? Uh, let me tell you something. The dollar bill has an ideology all of its own. People are moving industries out of the United States, and they continue to do so. I want things made in America. I want, I want to make sure our markets are not going to be destroyed by, you know, chips that come in, you know, the, the microprocessing and the uh, high-level uh, chips that are created in Silicon Valley. Look, that, that industry can be wiped out in a day with uh, a flood of uh, imports. We, we have to realize that America is a great place of innovation and science and technology. You know, we've made things so that we can be proud of, but we can't keep an edge if we give away what it is we've made. And this is where corporations have a patriotic responsibility to America. They don't really feel it. They don't pretend they have it. But they, I think they really do. You know, if you're going to take your money out of the country, keep it out of the country, make cheap goods, flood this country with it, you're not a good American. I guess, what do we do about rising prices, though? I guess that's always the big question, right? Which is the opposite of this. Like, I'm able to get this microphone that I'm speaking to you on today for a low cost because it was likely manufactured abroad. So do we just eat it as consumers, especially in an era where, you know, 40 to 50 percent of Americans get by paycheck to paycheck? Well, you know, the rising prices go up, even though the labor's cheap. Keep that in mind. It's not the cost of labor that's causing, causing prices to go up. It's the demand and, uh, you know, the go, go, go Wall Street uh, financialization of the economy. I mean, if people have high wages, 
You know why I'm buying goods that cost more if they're made in this country. But the goods cost more when they're not made in this country. Think about how that accelerates the erosion of our economy and of economic opportunities. So yeah, I, I have a probably a slightly different view of that. And I'm not happy with the Democratic Party. You gotta remember NAFTA passed under President Clinton. I think it was dead wrong with it. And, um, and it was one of the reasons why the knock-on effect, I think, was actually felt by Hillary Clinton uh, in, in, in her attempt to be elected president. I think that's a real reason why she was knocked out, because if you look at, at, at Ohio, at, at Michigan, and uh, states in the Midwest that took a beating when these trade agreements passed, you know, there, there, there was going to be a, re a reckoning that would occur politically, just inevitable. So speaking of that, populist politics, you seem like you fashioned yourself as a populist politician. Is there room for that in today's world? Obviously, we saw the rise of Trump and we'll no, probably I, see I, more populist presidents. I, I uh, don't fashion myself. I'm a truth teller. I just call it as I see it. I don't care whatever label people put on me. That doesn't mean anything to me. But when I see something that I not just disagree with, but I know it's wrong, I speak out. <clears throat> That's what I did after 9-11 when our country began to go on the path towards war against Iraq. I did the analysis. Anyone who wants to go and just and I'll demonstrate to them right now how that's the path that I've taken of truth telling. Go to any search engine, type in Kucinich Iraq War Analysis, October 2nd, 2002. And you will be surprised to learn that a member of Congress, me, had it nailed back then that they didn't have proof that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11 with Al-Qaeda's role in 9-11. Iraq didn't have the intention, the capability of attacking America. Iraq did not have the weapons of mass destruction which the administration at the time were using as the pretext to accelerate a military attack on Iraq. This was not just a tragedy. This was a monstrous lie that still calls out for justice. The people who went there to serve this country served honorably, and, and, and we love them. But the people who sent them there, not honorable. They lied. And, you know, we, we still have to reckon with that. That the, Iraq, that the Iraq war was based on a total lie. And I knew that before we got into it. I organized 125 uh, people, mostly Democrats, to vote against the Iraq war resolution. You know, that's the way I am. If I see something, I'll say it. And, and, and no issue is too big that will cause me to say, oh, well, I can't handle that. It's a war. No, there are things you have to step forward on. And that's what I did, just like I did years earlier in Cleveland when I was called upon to say the sale of a municipal electric system was wrong, that they were trying to force us to sell it. It's fundamentally wrong. So it's just about, you know, the capacity, the willingness to stand up for what's right and stand against and to challenge what's wrong. So are there any truth tellers out there that we see on television these days in politics? I don't look for truth tellers. I follow my own conscience. Well, is there anyone that we should be watching? No, I'm not going to advise you to do that. I think that, you know, each person has to decide for himself or herself based on their own moral compass what's right and wrong. 
I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a devotee of anybody's politics, of anybody's career. Um, you know, I have a spiritual center, and that's what I follow. And I'm, you know, I make my decisions based on, uh, on my not just my life experience, but on some deeper understanding of whether things are right or wrong. Well, I hope there's more of that in politics. On that note, we know your time is valuable, Congressman. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, I appreciate this incisive, probing interview because it really, you know, it causes me to go deeper into these questions. And I just want to thank you for that. Yeah, of course. That's my job. That's what journalism is supposed to be all about. Thanks. Thank you so much. And please let people know about the book. Uh, if you can, put it on a website so people have a chance to look at it. It's nothing like what that book described as ever before happened in American politics. At least it never surfaced before. So thanks so much. Thank you. So one of the things that I've always liked about Congressman Kucinich is that he challenges my ideas that I have about America. I can't think of many things I agree with him on, but I think it's unique insight that we have to think about. You know, all these questions about free trade and the role of the military are important questions for our generation. We can't let these go anymore. We're seeing a serious crisis with the middle class in this country and their ability to just pay for their basic needs, including rent, health care, and education. And a lot of it is a function of how much money they make. They're not making enough money. So how do we get more money into the pockets of the middle class? And naturally, all roads lead back to trade, specifically free trade. Me, myself, I'm very pro-free trade. I feel like it's the cloud above your head. You can't really fight it. But there are questions as to whether we've taken it too far, whether we do need some homegrown manufacturing. And it's the same thing with the military. Having a strong military and being the global leader is very important, but fighting needless wars and nation building is probably something that we shouldn't be doing. And that's a bipartisan issue these days. But in the not so distant past, when I was in college, the Iraq war was something that was very popular. And today we probably wouldn't see the same thing because of economic reasons. It's widely apparent that here in America, regular Americans need help. We need secure power, paved roads, infrastructure in general, a stronger education system. Our needs grow every day. Everything gets more competitive over time. And if we don't make investments here at home and grow the economy of the future and really visualize what we want to be as a country, we'll never get there. And I think that a lot of that process involves talking to people on the other side and realizing that truth isn't left or right. It's often in the middle. On that note, I'm David Grosso for Follow the Prophet. We'll see you next time. I'd like to thank my entire production team, including our executive producers, Debbie Myers and former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, as well as our young interns who are making sure this show is fresh and relevant for all of you. Follow the Prophet is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. You can download us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
part of the Gingrich 360 Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. The biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival. Presented by Capital One. Jason Aldean. Keith Urban. Jelly Roll. Old Dominion. Lady A. Riley Green. Ashley McBride. Brothers Osborne. Walker Hayes. All hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th. Stream only on Hulu. Starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Luis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.